This episode is supported by Seedlip, the world's first distilled non-alcoholic spirit. Crafted without alcohol, sugar, or calories, Seedlip spirits solve the dilemma of what to drink when you're not drinking, whether it's for the night, the month, or forever. Because as a non-drinker, it never feels good when your only options are water, soda, or sugary mocktails. So now you can skip the booze without feeling left out when it comes to your social life. And whether you prefer punchy citrus flavors, aromatic spices, or savory herbs, Seedlip offers a drink for every type of drinker. It's crafted using a bespoke process, including traditional copper distillation of botanicals. And each of Seedlip's three variants, which are Spice 94, Garden 108, and Grow 42, are alcohol-free and have their own unique flavors which pair so perfectly with just a splash of tonic. But they can also be used to make more complex cocktails and you'll find those in the Seedlip Cocktail Book or on their Instagram account at seedlip underscore na. So head on over to seedlipdrinks.com or .ca and use the promo code thisfamilytree10 for 10% off your favorite non-alcoholic spirit. They're available in Canada and in the US and now at LCBO stores across Ontario. Again, that's seedlipdrinks.com and thisfamilytree10. Hello everyone, I'm Alex and I am so glad that you could join me for happy hour on this Family Tree Podcast episode 149. It has been a long day and I can't tell you how happy I am to finally just be sitting here being able to vent on this podcast. It feels amazing. And we have a great episode lined up for you tonight. I reconnect with a girl I went to high school with, Brianna Dusam. She is now a mother, she's a social worker. And she has a really extraordinary life experience that she talks about on the show. She is an adoptee. We talk about adoption, intentionality in adoption, intentionality in parenting and identity and how that changes as you grow up and, you know, depending on the things that you go through. It's a super fascinating conversation. She is incredibly well-spoken. She has as I said, a fascinating experience. And regardless of where you are in life, you're a parent, maybe you have an adoption story of your own, maybe you're single, you're going to get something from this interview. You're going to love it. Can't wait for you to hear it. But guys, I don't have anybody to toast. Usually this is when I say, hey, Jane, cheers. And we have our non-alcoholic seed of cocktail, but it's just me tonight, friends. And you know, maybe that's a pro, maybe that's a con to you. It's con for me. I always, you know how I get when I'm alone. I hate being lonely. If you're a longtime listener, you know that. But it is just me today. And I want to start off by talking about intentionality because that's a conversation topic that I get into with Brianna a lot in this interview, but, you know, more in the adoption and parenting sense. And intentionality is something that I've been thinking of so much lately because I go through life being so unintentional. And I've always been happy to kind of float from one thing to the next without, you know, without too much regard and without thinking about the consequences or thinking about, oh, is this going to make things more difficult or easier, whatever. And to be honest, that's where I find my comfort. That's where I'm happy. But so many things fall by the wayside when you aren't being intentional. And there are so many, you know, aspects to marriage, to parenting, to my own health, to my self-care, where I need to bring that back in. I mean, we've talked about it before on this podcast and, you know, planning intimacy with your partner. You have to be intentional about that sometimes because, It's so easy after a day of work, parenting, whatever else the hell you got on your agenda 
to plop down in front of the TV at nine o'clock at night and just be way too tired, way too exhausted to even think about connecting in that way. We used to put it on the schedule, literally writing it in on a Wednesday night on a calendar. So unromantic, so not sexy. But then that intentionality of putting it on the calendar and then following through, which is an incredibly important step, actually led to that happening more. And then I think about, I just had my first workout, guys, okay, in what, let's see, June, July, August, September, October, my first workout in five months. And I was on a good streak. Like in June, guys, I was doing it a lot. I was feeling really great about myself. I was feeling fit, healthy, and I fell out of it. And it was like every day was going by and I was saying, okay, oh my gosh, like I'm so tired today. There's no time. I'll do it tomorrow. Tomorrow would come. I'd say, oh my gosh, I have no time. I'll do it tomorrow. The next day would come. The next day would come. The next day would come. And look, five freaking months have gone by and I have not done a single workout. And I'm somebody that loves that. Like I love to get a good sweat. It is so therapeutic to me. Like few things are as therapeutic as sweating and working out. And I haven't made the time. I've said I wanted to, but I haven't done anything. So on Friday, I was like, damn it, I'm doing it. And I was not feeling good. I was just feeling so tired. And then as I'm putting on my like my spinning shoes, just my feet felt like lead. They felt so heavy. And I'm like, oh, I'm really going to suck. Got on the bike, Within the first 30 seconds, like I felt the first bead of sweat dripping down my forehead and I was already exhausted. And then I just, I just made the decision. I'm like, look, I'm here. My shoes are on. I'm sitting on the bike. I'm in it. I'm going to put my all in it, even if it is the most difficult thing that I have to, that I've ever done. And it was (laughs) one of the most difficult things I've done in recent memory And it was so hard, but I felt amazing as you do, as you always do, right? After you tackle something that's been on your agenda for ages, you feel freaking amazing at the end. And that's how I felt. And I can't wait to do it again. My my plan today was to actually get another workout in. But then, you know, I had to look at my day and I, I couldn't prioritize it because I had too many other things that I needed to prioritize instead maybe even as forms of self-care. So that was fine. I'm not disappointed in myself. And I will get it tomorrow. That is my goal. I will get on that Peloton tomorrow and I'm going to feel great about it. But intentionality, again, in all aspects of life, I just read actually on Facebook, somebody I'm friends with just updated, you know, her community that she recently had a brain hemorrhage. And this is a healthy, you know, close to 40-year-old woman. And that scared the shit out of me reading that. She said that, you know, she had a headache like she had never known. She started vomiting and she went to ER and then they found that she had a brain hemorrhage. And now she's having to kind of reshape her whole life around that. She has to move countries, you know, to get back to good healthcare people that can help take care of her. And it's such a scary situation And this is something that always, you know, kind of plays on my mind is that I'm going to be so caught up with the kids, with work, with life 
that I, I'm going to have some some crazy health scare that could have been avoidable. And that terrifies me because not, you know, not only is it this one friend, but we have another friend of the family who's currently in hospital because she was ill kind of out of nowhere and sought help. But I, I don't know. And, and, and now she's in a scary situation and we're, and we're waiting on how that is going to kind of end up. But there are so many things, you know, so many ailments and so many issues that I've had with my health. And if you don't know, I have lupus, like I have an autoimmune disease. I have a history of seizures and migraines. So I don't really want to be playing around. And I let things go by. Like I, I, you know, have these scary ailments come up and then I just won't call the doctor because I don't have time. I need to start prioritizing myself in so many ways. And health is such an important one. And I, like I, I was about to say, I don't know why moms, you know, always kind of put their health last on the list, but I do. Like I, I know why we do it. It's because we think we'll be okay. And, you know, our kids need us more than we need the doctor and our freaking family needs us more than we need to go to the doctor because we're the ones keeping things afloat. And it's hard to pull yourself away from that situation, but we need to do it. You need to be intentional about calling the doctor, about buying that book you want to read, signing up for that class, getting on, you know, working out, having sex, whatever it is, you need to be intentional about it. But then you need to follow through. And even if you're doing it like begrudgingly at first, that's fine. I do everything begrudgingly at first. Trust me. I <laughs> I open up every page of a book and I'm like, ah, it's not going to be as good as that last one I read. And I start reading every book, like hating it. And then, you know, on page three, I'm like, all right, this is okay. I start every workout hating it. Everything begrudgingly. And it's brutal of me. But then you really start to love it. And you can like trick your brain into loving it. And then you just feel good. And every part of you feels good. And then you don't feel like you're neglecting yourself in whatever aspect, you know, it was that you were neglecting. So I want to challenge like listeners and including myself. I'm putting this out there because I want to do it too. What can you do this week for yourself again, in any aspect of your life to do something like how, how can you take time? What are you going to be intentional about and get done for yourself this week? So make the plan right now, pause this podcast, take a second, make a plan. What do you want to do for yourself? Write it down, tell a friend, tell your spouse, have some kind of accountability. And then later in the week, actually freaking do it. Because that's what I'm going to do. Okay, first of all, I'm going to get back on that Peloton. I'm going to work out again. Next, I'm going to shave my legs. And I'm going to make a move on Shane. That's a number two. And I do have to call the doctor. I got to call the doctor about some health concerns. Because again, I do, I do put that off. Um, so good reminder for everyone. Good reminder for me. And yeah health and just your, your wellness in general is something we don't want to play with. So prioritize yourselves this week, guys. That's all I want to say. And with that and with, you know, thinking about intentionality and love and what that means to love yourself, to love others, I want to bring that 
to the interview. And let's go talk to Brianna Dusan. But before we talk to Brianna, I'm going to tell you who we are supported by. We are supported by Mini Miosh. Mini Miosh is a premium, organic, ethically made, and sustainable kids and babies clothing company founded and created in Toronto. They believe in quality over quantity, and they make, like I am telling you, the best basics that you can get your hands on for your littles. They do fashionable wardrobe staples that are soft, comfy, and timeless. It can be passed from child to child regardless of gender. And I'm telling you, they last. Everything that Lucy wore as a baby, Betty has now gone through, and I am now packing them all up to ship them to my next pregnant friend. Their organic cotton fabrics are knit and dyed locally using GOTS certified organic cotton and low-impact non-toxic dyes. Plus, they just came out with... A women's collection did their second drop. This is the M and West collection. I am obsessed. And if you go on their website, you'll see yours truly modeling for them because I love it so much. But everything in this collection, just like the kids' clothes, it's simple. A really neutral, pretty color palette, French terry. Everything is made ethically and sustainably. And Mini Miosh in general is on a mission to leave the planet better off for our little ones than when they arrived on it. And they believe that every little bit counts. So you can find the company online at minimiosh.com or at minimiosh on Instagram and Facebook. And if you use the promo code thisfamilytree15, you're getting 15% off your order. This is available in Canada and in the US, and it is one use per customer. So load up your cart. And again, that's minimiosh.com and this family tree 15. And now let's get to our interview with Brianna Dusam. Bri, welcome to this family tree podcast. We touched base by phone last week, and I am so happy to be finally sitting down with you and, yes. and doing this. So doing it for the listeners. Can you, can you give us a little, a little bio, who you are, what you do? Oh gosh, where to begin? Um, <laughs> I feel like it's hard to summarize my life into a bio, and I've always struggled with that. I don't know if it's just me, but like whenever I'm asked that, it's like, how can you, how can you expect people to understand who you are if you can't like explain it? I'm like, I don't know, because I don't know where to start, and that's a really hard thing. So I think where I'll lead is that I'm a mom of two. I have a three-year-old and a five-year-old. I am a transracial adoptee. Um, I'm a social worker. And right now I work as a director of programs for a charity organization. And yeah, I just, I feel like I have, there's many roles that I fulfill in terms of being a family member or friend, but yeah, no. I think those are the ones I'll go by today. I think that's such a good place to start. And I want to ask because something like social work, that is like, that's a taxing job. It's a thankless job. It's a taxing one. And what is it about social work that drew you in? Because it, it is grueling. For in high school, and I think like early 20s, I wanted to be a teacher. And I love the work that teachers do. I just found that I think the reason why I wanted to be a teacher is because when we're in high school, we're kind of, we're kind of told different roles. And I was like, oh, that sounds like a good one. I'm going to go for that. But it, <laughs> then it just didn't feel authentic to me. Um, so I just kind of reflected in my early 20s on who I was and what I wanted to give to the world. And I just reflected on my life experiences and how I could bring my life experiences to the work because I recognized the barriers and not all barriers, but I recognize the barriers that exist um, and how I could have an active role in contributing to 
not really removing them, but helping people endure them. I I think that's a great way of putting that. And I do want to just interject and say, I'm so sorry if you can hear my kids yelling. They're fighting bedtime with my husband right now. And they're not happy. They have had Halloween candy today. So I apologize (laughs) for that. But I do want to get into adoption because this is uh, a topic that we have been through on the pod with several different parents. And this is with gay couples who have adopted. This is with transracial adoptees, but different than you. So um, we've spoken to a black woman who had a white adopted daughter um, and what she goes through on that journey. And I'm just, I'm so curious on adoption in general, and I know you have pretty strong opinions on it, which you share a lot online. And I'm so appreciative for that because they're honestly things that I would never think of. Um, and I mean, I'm interested to knowing your story. Like when did you find out or did you always know, uh, that you were adopted? Sure. Where to start? So I'll just, I guess I'll start when on the, like how I kind of found out I was adopted. So yeah, I'm a transracial adoptee. You kind of touched on that. Um, I was adopted from foster care. I was, but my, my, my mother was my foster parent. So for two years of my life, I found this out later that I I was, I went by Jasmine Mm -hmm. and then at my, around my second birthday, when I was adopted, I went from Jasmine to Brianna. So uh, yeah, sometimes when I like look back at that, sorry, you may hear um, noises in the background. Okay. When I look back at that, it's just, it's it's bizarre that I was a whole other person. And then when I was two, I became Brianna. Like it's just. So can I, it, can I, so just to make sure it's clear, because I, uh, I want to be on top of what you're saying. So for the first two years of your life, you're being fostered by your adopted mother. And my adoptive father. I always okay. say adoptive mother because it's just, yeah. Just to make a distinction. Yes. It's, and so they essentially renamed you when you were legally brought into their family. Yes. Okay. Okay. Yes. Um, so I found out I was adopted when I was around, I th- I'd like to say around seven. It's hard to look back because memories are super fuzzy and unclear. But I think I was around seven, seven to ten. I'm going to say around seven. And I found out because that was around the time that other people were recognizing the difference in the colors of my skin and then the color of my parents' skin. And other people were bringing it to my attention. So even though I was really aware, like I just felt like I was like in the family, I didn't really challenge it Mm -hmm. until other people were questioning it. And then when that happened, I brought it to my mom and dad and I was like, why am I brown? And you're, I just like called it out. I was like, why am I brown? And you're white. And then they sat me down and I'm not really sure how they did it, but because I'm one of the older adopted siblings, I've seen it with the other, Mm. (laughs) how they explained it to them to be able to kind of know how they do it. So they kind of explained it to me, um, that I didn't come from her tummy but I came from someone else's and she'll always be grateful for that. Um, and that she chose me. I just remember her using the words very clearly that she chose me, but I also remember feeling this shock and overwhelm because I was like, but then like, where'd you take me from? How did you get me? Like, who are they? 
And then it was just like a lot of different complexities just kind of rose to the surface and stood there, stayed there. They did. But then after that, it just kind of made me like reflect back at all of the moments that I could have noticed that I was adopted Um, because they started really small. Like I remember as uh, I think around three or four, I remember being at the grocery store and people would just like stop my mom and be like, where did you get her from? What? Um, Yeah. Like the audacity to just like stop a mom and ask like as if a child is a commodity, but people have a whole lot of audacity. Well, and then that makes me think too of like the Madonnas of the world and Angelina Jolie's of the world. Right. Yeah. Where it's like, it's the savior complex. Mm -hmm. There is. And that's the thing that I think, I think that's the thing that makes adoption so complex Right, is the savior complex. Is the intention behind the adoption. Okay. I saw you did a post. I, I was debating bringing this up because a lot of it, most of it made sense to me, but then a little bit of it, I was like, oh, I don't like, I, I was, I was just curious to know your take on this because I didn't understand it. So I saw a post that you put and it was like reasons to not adopt or something like that. And then it was like, you're, you want a, an adopted kid to fill a void in your marriage. You want an adopted kid to do this. And I was like going through and I was like, okay, makes sense, makes sense, makes sense. But then it was like, you're single and you don't have kids, but you really want one. And I was like, well, that seems, you want a kid and you want to, if a kid needs a home, it makes sense to me. And I was so curious, your take on that. Yeah. Let me reflect on that because I just want to make sure that I capture it in a good way. But the biggest thing is I'm going to bring it back to intention. Mm -hmm. I think that often adoption has been seen as a backup plan. Right. And children don't exist to be a backup plan, but it's, it's never really been challenged because when you think about oppression, adoption is never viewed as oppression, but it is because think about whose narrative is most dominant and it's never the adoptees. It's never, it's always the adoptive parents with these feel good stories about the children that they saved and gave a better life, but it's never about the grief and loss that comes from a child being brought into the world and then separated from their original families. And I find that if there isn't that acknowledgement of the fact that a child's life starts with grief and it's more focused on filling the needs of parents who are people who want to be parents Mm -hmm. instead of being there for a child that needs that extra, that needs support. I think that that until that healing is done. Mm-hmm. So why I say very clearly, these are not reasons to adopt until that healing is done as to where they're at in different parts of their life. That may be something that's projected on a child that's already going through a lot and we feel it. I we know. feel it. Well, then that's like, that's what I, I kind of want to get into. Cause you said, so you found out between like around seven. Mm-hmm. Between, okay. And like, I mean, like, I remember growing up, right? And I'd go to my brother when he was like six. And as a way to tease him, I'd be like, yeah, you're adopted. And like to to make him feel a certain way, but also 
like there was no like I was young when I was like I, I might have been seven or eight saying that right because it was the only mm-hmm. the only thing I could think of and it's like I wanted to make him feel maybe like an outsider or something but then especially at that age I had no context and no understanding of what it meant to be adopted mm-hmm. and what it would mean to actually be hold on if he was adopted what's the rest of the story why mm-hmm. is he adopted why was he separated how would that make him feel and i'm sure that as a 7 year old that has got to be so overwhelming because nobody's thinking about those things because in your head it's like okay my mom my dad this is just it like this is it's just always been the same but you had already gone through an entire identity shift mm-hmm. in that time. So as a seven-year-old, I mean, that's a lot to take in. But were you you were asking those questions and how are they being met? Like, were and this just comes from a place of curiosity because I don't know what how to respond to that. I wouldn't know as an adoptive parent. But how what was the response for you? I think that there's lots that you you said there that I kind of want to speak to, but I think that's that's what made that's what makes the identity journey of well my identity. I can't speak to all adoptees because all of our 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 journeys are unique. Mm-hmm. But what makes it really similar is is how a, the system of adoption and the lack of adoptee voices in the training of adoptee par- adoptive parents that could inform them to have a better understanding. And for me. My experience of being an adoptee has always been feeling like I'm less than. And and even though like I had a loving mom and you can have loving parents, mm-hmm. I always felt like I was an outsider. And I always felt, because I knew my mom, the reason why she adopted me is because of infertility. Mm-hmm. And she said it. Like, she's like, I wish I could have carried you. And for me, as a seven-year-old, I'm like, I wish I could have been yours you know like it's like it's like I couldn't control that and I really felt that lack of control at a really young age is like I couldn't control that feeling of not belonging and then like I I feel like I always felt like I didn't belong in the life that I had it's like I was a backup plan I was a second option and and that's not something great to feel. Mm-hmm. You don't want to feel like someone's settled for you. How did you how did you cope with that? Like did you talk to them about how that made you feel or did you talk to anybody? I didn't cope. I had a lot of anger as mm-hmm. a as a child and a lot of anger as a teen. I might get emotional, sorry. Oh, um just thinking about it is because I was quite isolated with it. I would try and explain like how I felt, but I didn't feel like my mom was equipped to have the conversations with me. Mm-hmm. And again, she was an amazing person, but I always got like, we're doing our best, mm-hmm. but then I wouldn't have the space to, I didn't have a therapist. I didn't have another adoptee to talk to about it. I had other adoptive siblings, but they were also as kind of like, we didn't really talk about it. We just yeah. were like, we went through the the family thing. And, and that was it. So I think I just went through my childhood and my teen years just being really angry and wishing that I could, like, just, I carried it. I think that's mm. the, the best way to say is that it just was here in my chest. And I carried a lot of grief. I carried a lot of 
trauma and, and, uh, overwhelmed because I just didn't have anyone to really help me navigate the complexities. And what, at what point in your life then did you start kind of rough, like trying to cope with those things or reflect on them in ways that might be like helpful to you? Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I think in my twenties, there's actually a word for it. It's called coming out of the fog. I think I came out of the fog um, of adoption in my twenties is you're often, I mean, I was, I, like I had said to you is that I, I definitely held a lot of anger because it was unresolved grief. And who's, or, who's the anger toward too? Like, is it? That's a complex question, Alex. Um, <laughs> <laughs> where to start? Um, but it is a complex question. It's like my adoptive parents, I think on maybe for not really like connecting me to other, like for me, I'm black and indigenous. So like connecting me to my culture, like yeah. I never really was around any black people. I was never around indigenous people. Like I just kind of was around my family. And I think I was like, I'd go to school and I'd face racism and I'd come home and be like, why are they tell- like calling me the N-word? Why are they telling me to go back oh to God. Africa? Oh I'm God. from Toronto. Like I'm adopted from Toronto, mom. Like, why are they saying this to me? And my mom really didn't have the answers. And then I just be there like, okay, I have to face tomorrow and have all these questions and all of these kind of attacks and not know how to really properly defend myself. So I think that's part of the anger um, is like my parents not really being the people behind me that I needed them to be. Yeah. And then obviously for my biological mother, I did and do still hold a lot of resentment for um, just the feeling of abandonment the feeling of not being enough mm-hmm. to want to be kept, wondering if she held me and then passed me off. Yeah. And then I think just in general, the fact that adoptees are very much treated as commodities that can be exchanged. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a challenging thing for like to sit with all of that and not really having an outlet for it. No shit. No, Brie, that's... That's a lot. That's heavy. And honestly, it's something that I don't ever hear being spoken about in regards to adoption. Um, it makes me think about how I've thought about adoption in the past. And listeners of the podcast know, and like I've spoken openly about how after, so like in between my two girls, I miscarried. And I was like, look, I'm, I'm going to try to get pregnant one more time. But if I can't, we have room in our house, we have room in our hearts, and like I want to bring in another child, right? So I'll look at adoption. And then and I got pregnant, and I don't have room in my house for adoption anymore. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And um, that makes me reflect on that situation. And why, why, like, I, I know why I felt that way. And like, I also financially couldn't have more than two kids, probably. I feel that. Yeah, <laughs> it's tough out there. But um, it's, yeah, it's uncomfortable. I feel uncomfortable right now about it. And I, I can see that parents would have a difficult time discussing that especially if it's transracial adoption and i mean like you're are you my age exactly or with them we're like a year of each other 89 are we 80 are 89 babies yes yes we were in the same grade yes Alex. <laughs> sorry I, I i don't i don't know right people are all over the place sometimes um 
But it's like, especially at that point. Oh, and for those who don't know, Brie and I know each other from high school. But <laughs> um, we go way back. <laughs> yeah. But in, okay, at that point, right? Especially then, there wasn't, I mean, there was only a reckoning recently with white people to how, you know, white saviorism conversations about race and about how we, you know, as maybe people who say we are not racist, how how that actually comes into play when we're interacting with people and people of color or other white people. And um, it's like I, I, I don't see how a parent at that time would be equipped naturally unless they sought things out. And I don't know anybody who was seeking things out at that time because it was – it's hard. It's hard because from your parents' view, and honestly, like, I'm thinking about that too, they were just probably so in love with you and just thought that they their love for you was enough, I'm, I imagine. Is that right? Yes. And that's, and that's an ongoing kind of thing that adoptees are bringing forth is that love isn't enough. Um, it unfortunately isn't enough. Their needs. I mean, I'm a parent Mm -hmm. and I'm forever learning from my children how to be a better parent to them. Like I will see something happen and I'll see their reaction and be like, Ooh, okay. Reflect on that and do better. Like I'm continuously evolving as a parent, but becoming a foster parent or becoming an adoptive parent takes so much more work than that. It really takes intentional work to really try to understand the unique needs of your foster child and unique needs of your adoptee Mm -hmm. and really understand the trauma that they may carry and the grief they may carry. And a lot of patience to really recognize that this is about their journey and not so much about like your parenting journey. Um, And I think that's a lot of times like what parents don't understand in becoming an adoptive parent or foster parent is that this comes with a lot of work to meet each child where they're at. You know, on that too, I would build and say love honestly is not enough in so many situations, whether it's in a marriage with a sibling, with a friend, as a parent, like you said, there needs to be intentional work and that kind of intentional work is going to change whether it's within a relationship, like a, a romantic relationship with it's a bi- with a biological child or with an adoptive child. Mm-hmm. But there needs to be intention there because love can only get you so far and it can only meet, you know, so many of the other person's needs because mm-hmm. so many needs go beyond the scope of love. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's hard too for people to see sometimes. And like I've been blinded by that before too. And, you know, in relationships and things and thought, well, you, we love each other. We can make it work. And it's like, oh, no, not, not really. You need, mm-hmm. you need to do a lot to make it work. You need to learn. You need to reflect, self-reflect, and you need to get better in certain ways. Like it's love is the best, but – it's not always enough. Mm-hmm. So are there programs now, like, do you know through your social work, like, implemented that help adoptive parents connect or give them tools or anything? Like, you were talking earlier about maybe having kids that have been through the adoptive journey inform parents 
mm-hmm. of their experiences and what they can do. Is, is there anything in place now? Do you know? Yeah. And I'm just going to bring it back a little bit. Do Sorry, it. Yeah, just a little bit. Is that I think that it really, what, what really needs to happen is like you kind of talk to the reckoning and you kind of talk to and like how people are paying attention. And I think people in general paying more attention to oppression. So I'm going to bring, bring it back to oppression and systems. And I think people need to recognize how adoption is a system and how the narratives are really controlled with it, within it as a system. And, and I think that we need to move away from the feel good foster children, adoptive stories, mm-hmm. because those place a lot on a lot of expectations on how a foster child and adoptee should be. A lot of foster children and adoptees growing up feeling like they should be so, so grateful for the life they've been given. They were saved from the system. They're now in these amazing homes. But you know what? Like, even if you're in a loving home, like there there can be good and bad experiences. There's a lot of rehoming that happens with foster children and adoptees where someone will be like, yeah, I really need to fill this void, but actually this is too much work for me. And then they give them back to the system. Is that There's allowed? a lot of that that happens. It is allowed and it happens and it's super traumatic for the children. And then often a lot of adoptees, because of the the lack of space to be who they are, but except, instead or they're like expected to be how the family wants them to be, like yeah. they're expected to mold themselves to the family. There's a lot of estrangement that happens for adoptees or foster children. Once they get 18, the parents are like, we checked the box and you're not really ours. And it's hard to say that, but some are like, you're not really ours. So our duty here is done. And a lot of, there's a lot of estrangement that happens for adoptive adoptees that they, they don't, it's not like the perfect thing that everyone sold it to be yeah. for their childhood. And then they're just left on their own. So I feel like there needs to be that acknowledgement and that awareness that the oppression behind it and the loss of control. Did you, okay. Did you hear about the, um, the rehoming thing when you said that it shocked me. And then I was like, no, I've heard this story before. There was an influencer like Mm -hmm. popular. Do you know who I'm talking about? I do. I don't know their name because I don't, don't want to their... give them that much attention or power. No, this but... was a few years ago. I, and I didn't know who this person was prior to this happening. I just read about it like in the news because they had adopted a small child. And then given – they gave the child back to the system yep. after like a few years, I think. And yep. the kid was – it was – well, it doesn't matter how old you are, but it was like a kid – and in the years that they had the kid, they were using the kid on social media. And like doing yeah. that blew my mind when I read that. I think that was the first instance I had ever heard where I'm like, how is that even, how is that allowed? But like, how how, how are people able to do that? Yeah. Well, the thing is, is like, okay, there's two, a couple of different things. Let's, I don't even know if I want to go into influencers, but... <laughs> You there can are say, some people. You can say whatever you want. We're good. We're good. You can swear. Okay. You can say whatever you want, Brie. <laughs> it's like, it's not funny, but I'm laughing because it's just like, it's like the audacity. There's a lot yeah. of audacity with adoption. Mm-hmm. The thing is, is like, even I think about the Wendy's campaign. I don't know if you've ever pulled up for a JBC. I, my family loved the JBCs. Tasty. All about it. Tasty. So uh, there's a campaign and it's still like, I live in Ottawa and I went into a Wendy's. And they have a campaign like where you donate money, where it says, 
like bunnies, children need homes too. What? Why? Wait. This was this went through a whole marketing team, right? Why like bunnies. Like someone was like, okay, are we signing off on this? Everyone buying in. And then it went through a whole team and pushed out through Canada that let's pre- compare children to bunnies, to pets. Wait, yeah. is it because is it um like a, an adoption charity? Like rescues. We're, we're often compared to like of pets, like we're rescued, oh right? We're rescued. We're the so... saviorism of it. Yeah. No, but it's like, it's like cringy, but it's so much heavier than being cringy. But it's just like, how does, how is that possible? Yeah. So that is very similar to oh what might've happened there where she rescued this child, but then was like, just like you think about some people who are unable to keep pets that they just rehome them and they rehome children and they think that children are just so resilient it's okay they're going to get another family who may take care of them better than i did and not recognize that children form attachments and this is wrong <laughs> like, oh my god okay so as a parent cuz you you've got two kids of your own um did that like did it did it change your viewpoints on anything that you had gone through either for in in a positive way, in a negative way, in a neutral way, did motherhood, when you experience it, did it just like evolve your thinking on adoption in any way? That was my first biological connection. Like when I when I had Callie, like my my first child, oh, shit. that was the first time I had someone that I felt that I had like a biological, like that was my first biological connection. So, I mean, that in itself was really powerful for me because I was like, I just made this human and they're mine and we're connected because I'd never felt biologically connected to anyone before. So that was like really impactful to, to have children just, just as an adoptee is just a whole other experience. And I'll just, Um, just to put it into perspective and I want the listeners to reflect on this too. Like I've never, I've never had to think about that. I've never thought about that. Not once in my life. And I, I think that that, that's very impactful. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, within that, even it's just like, you get asked a lot of questions. Like when I was about to give birth, it was like, or when I was pregnant, it's like, what did your biological, like, what did your mother go through? I'm like, I'm adopted. (laughs) Like it's the medical history. It's like, that comes with this whole other, whole other complexity is like, you don't know anything. So I had to answer a lot of questions with, I don't know, um, and was a, let's see how the labor goes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. So what yeah. – did it make – did it change your opinion of adoption or, or, or of your own journey? Going back to that, thank you for – sometimes I go off I go off into like way off. No, same. Question. <laughs> but, but I like where you go though. I like where you go because since this is your story – Sometimes I don't know where to go. I don't know the things to ask. So feel free to bring things up as they come along because like, this is you, buddy. Like this, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, but yeah, did, did it give you any insight in a positive, negative, neutral way to maybe what your adoptive parents, your biological mother, anything like that even? I have a really complex relationship with my biological mother. And I think that for me after um, I've, I reconnect with my biological mother when I was in my mid twenties, a couple years before I had my first. Mm-hmm. And 
it was really hard to connect with them just for the reasons that I've talked about earlier. Mm. It's just that feeling of abandonment. It's also, I feel like I, she kind of, the way that she kind of talked is like she expected to just walk back into my life and, and take on all of my successes and not really <laughs> witness any of my challenges or really like subscribe to any of my challenges. So um, I saw that as an adoptee, we're pretty good BS readers. Like we can see when people, like we can see when people's words aren't matching their actions. Cause that happens a lot in our life where words are just not enough and people's actions matter. Like where she had a choice to be my mom and she chose not to be. So mm-hmm. then why now? Um, and I think that becoming a mom, I felt even more, I felt a little bit more anger because I'm like, for me, And I can share a little bit about this, but I became a mom as a single mom Mm -hmm. and it was really challenging. And I know I was a bit older than my biological mother, but I, I did first time motherhood as a single mom and I did the pregnancy by myself and I went to the hospital by myself with a friend and my mom, but like I went into the hospital by myself and I chose to keep my daughter, mm-hmm. even through all those challenges. So I, I feel like I, I did carry, and I still to this day, carry a little bit of anger and resentment to my my biological mother for that. And I think that's that's one thing that I think about with adoption that I, like it's hard to kind of heal is that, yeah. So, you know, and, and I know you're critical, openly critical about like the system and there are mm-hmm. so many problems with it. And I see that too, just, you know, being in school so much and, and knowing kids who were like, I, I had two adoptive friends, like they were siblings growing up and it is so problematic and the foster system even more so um, from my perspective. Mm-hmm. And like, what's your take? Like, how do we, how does it get fixed? Is there an alternative? Is there a way that is there like one thing that could be like implement this and it will be a hundred times better listen to adoptees that is something I'm gonna say like very loud mm-hmm. and I'm gonna say just today like today is actually adoptee remembrance day today October 30th uh, today and tomorrow is uh actually on November 1st is is national Ad- adoption awareness month NAM where you might see it like you might see it within the adoption community where it's a month where we just, within that, we can have a lot of expectations placed on us. People may like ask for free labor, emotional labor and all of that. But also it's a month where we can, where people actually may listen to us Mm -hmm. because a lot throughout the year, adoptive parents can be centered. A lot of adoptive organizations, you've asked us previously, what's existing out there, even like organizations that are adoption organizations, if you look very critically as to who is the executive director, who's the leadership team, or who's even employed at these organizations, it's all adoptive parents. And and if you think about it, it's like going back to how adoption is an oppression and how adoption, like whose voices and narratives are being heard. It's like, it's, it's when people are like, I have, and you said it, like I have adoptive friend, adopted friends. Mm-hmm. People can be like, yeah, well, I have an adoptee. So yeah. I'm oh, I'm super aware of the adoption experience. I have an adoptive father. So therefore, I'm aware of the experience. I have an adoptive. It's like the proximity to adoption makes them super aware of the grief and trauma just by the proximity. Mm-hmm. But if we were to say that in the same sense of like, 
I have a black friend or I have a black sister or I have a black, it would be viewed a little differently, but somehow adoption is not viewed in the same light where like the proximity to adoption therefore is makes them knowledgeable enough to educate others on an experience. And that's not the case. No, (laughs) I, I couldn't imagine just proclaiming to know, um, even the feeling like what you mentioned, because that's still sitting with me about finding out that you went from Jasmine to Brianna and your identity changed. And Without maybe my control. Yeah. And maybe that's great. And maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe it matters a lot. I only I can only know what you tell me. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's the vicarious. It's the learned experience instead of lived experience. And okay, and about that, at what point did you find that? Did you always know since you found out you were adopted? Or at what point did you find out about that? Because maybe for some people, it's like an inconsequential detail. And maybe for some people, it holds a lot of meaning. Where was that on on your scale? On what? Like finding out about that identity shift and your name change. Like was that an inconsequential detail to you? Or was that did that hold a lot of meaning for you? So I actually found out about the name change, like not too long ago. I lost my mom last year. My adopted mm-hmm. mom died last year unexpectedly. I'm so sorry about that. I, I, I remember when that happened. Yeah. Yeah. And then with that, I, I just went through like a grief journey. I was just like, what do what do I know about her? What do I know about myself? Like I've lost the person who may hold the key to who I am. Mm -hmm. So I kind of just went through all the paper. I knew that she changed my name. I knew that my name had been Jasmine, but I didn't know that my name had been Jasmine for two years. Right. So I, I thought it had just been like, it was like my birth mother gave that to me. Like, like here's Jasmine. Like she passed me to my, my mom and said, this is Jasmine. And my mom was like, cool, but I actually want to name her Brianna. I thought that it just happened that quickly. I didn't know that I had held it for so long. So I honestly have just carried that knowledge for the last year. And now in a way, I feel a connection not having my mom here anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and I say my mom, people are like, you mean your adoptive mom? I'm like, no. When someone raises you yeah. and puts in that work to deal with all the shit that goes with raising, sorry, sorry, I'm swearing. No, you're but all we're, the shit we're that happens with parenting. By the way. <laughs> okay, okay, cool. <laughs> all the shit that is like comes with being a parent, it comes with a lot. A, it's mm-hmm. a chaotic, wonderful thing, parenting. But like she did that work. So I'm calling her mom and sh- and I will always call her mom. And it's not like, it's not like, is it your bio mom? Like, mm-hmm. if I ever say mom, it's the person who raised me. Mm-hmm. just clarity it's the person who raised me so my mom I feel like that was a gift so now it's like maybe before she might have died I would have been more angry about the, how long I possessed that name and the identity but now knowing that she chose to name me Brianna is something she gave me and it's something I'll cherish just in losing her and when it comes that's to f- me that's my yeah. that's my own take on it yeah no and, and I can imagine how that would be it would be so different because it, it is so nuanced and everybody's family life is so different, right? And when it comes to families and family, how do you define family? I'm still figuring that out, Alex. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> My family kind of blew up last year with her death a little bit. Um, and I still very much am struggled starting to kind of feel like wondering where I belong. Mm-hmm. Um, um, yeah, family is complex. 
that's the one way for me to see it is like, I, I have a family in terms of like my dad and people I grew up with. Mm -hmm. And, but I also feel like connection also is family. So I, I, for me, like I kind of said earlier is like, I'm a big BS reader. (laughs) Like I can, I, people, I, I read words, but I also feel actions. So family for me is the people who show up and keep putting in the work, like who don't just want to be in my life, but they want to really commit to accepting me for all that I am and all Mm -hmm. that I want to be. So I think that can be friends. It can be people that I was raised with. It's really just, and it can be like my children. And I definitely like, like I said earlier, is like when I had my children, I was like, Oh, like, this is the first time I was like, these are mine. Like I just mm-hmm. made these to, like, it's just, <laughs> yeah, it's just, it was a very strong, powerful and like immediate love that I'd never felt before. Um, because I really, because I really struggled to belong and I really struggled to feel connected to people and attached to people. I, I sometimes push people away. I test people. I'd be like, my my the person who was supposed to love me didn't from the moment I entered to this world. So I did test people a lot in my life. And I didn't feel like I like the unconditional love with my kids when I first had them. I was just like, like that's it's it. there. It was instant. <laughs> this is like what? Like I can't push them away, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> <laughs> can I just be like, I can hide upstairs for like, you know, half yeah. an hour here and there. But like, yeah. So it's just, I don't know. I like just a, a long explanation of your, to your question is that I think that it really is like the people who show up and I have a pretty good relationship with my bio auntie and, and that's growing. And the reason why I have a good relationship with her is because despite the complexity of my relationship with my bio mom, she's like, I don't care about any of that. I'm, I'm like, I, and I said to her and I was like, I felt, I didn't know if to, if I should connect with you because she has always been in your life. Your sister has always been in your, your life, but no one knows me. So I felt like I could be discarded and I felt like forgotten. And she said to me, she's like, even though I just found out about you, I will never think about you any differently. Like you are an important part of me and I will always be there for you. And she has like really kind of committed to that, those words. Like she's, she came up last year, my mom died and just kind of was there. She was my village and she checks in on me all the time and like, this past summer was like the first time that they really threw me a birthday celebration where it was like, it was like, yeah, it was really nice to feel celebrated and like experience a bit more about black culture. It's just, it's just, it was, it was such a huge thing. Like they did a huge cookout and I was like, this is the food I've been missing out on. Like, damn. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Brianna, we're going to take a quick break and let our listeners know who we're supported by. We are supported by Bravado Designs. Bravado Designs makes the best nursing bras that you can get your hands on. And I know there are lots of nursing mothers listening because we talk. Some of you are my friends. Some of you are my coworkers. You need this bra. It's practical. It is comfy. And it is one of the only things when I was nursing that felt like good on my boobs. Because you know how it feels. They get raw. 
But Bravado Designs now has an everyday collection. So these are bras with no clips, but the same comfort and quality that you love from their nursing collection. But they're not just for nursing mothers. They're for anybody with boobs. And you will love these as much as you love the bra that you were first introduced to Bravado Designs with in the first place. So you can get the nursing bras at bravadodesigns.com or you can head to the Canadian website for access to the everyday collection at ca.bravadodesigns.com. But regardless of which website you go to, use the promo code thisfamilytree20 for 20% off your order. This is a big deal. And again, that is bravadodesigns.com and thisfamilytree20. We are also supported by True Earth. And if you listen to this podcast, you know that Shane and I are in the process of reducing our environmental footprint. And this is, I would say, an ongoing process. We've started, we've been doing it for a year, and we plan to be doing it forever. And True Earth is an amazing company to kind of take in your home if you're on a journey like us. They have a lot of different ways that you can start reducing that footprint. And one of the easiest ways we found was by switching up our laundry detergents. So we were doing like the big plastic bottles, liquid detergent takes up so much space in the laundry room for years. That's all I've known. But then we switched to the True Worth laundry detergent. So this detergent comes in pre-measured soluble strips that you simply rip apart and toss in the machine. It is so easy. They work amazing. And the best part they're not made with any plastic. The packaging is like a tiny little thin piece of cardboard and it takes up zero space on your shelf. Not only do our clothes get clean and are we reducing that footprint, but it is drastically changing the tidiness of our laundry room. And as a family with kids who have really sensitive skin, we typically opt for the baby detergent because it's fragrance-free, gentle on skin, and it's still so tough on dirt. Our clothes come out smelling great and super clean. But they also have a new lilac breeze scent, which is just like the prettiest, most springy scent that you can smell. And I highly recommend it. Shane is obsessed. And you can get all these products at true.earth. And if you use the promo code thisfamilytree10, you're getting 10% off your order. And that is either a subscription order or a one-time order. Doesn't matter. You're getting 10% off. You're going to love this product. Take my word for it. Again, that is true.earth and thisfamilytree10. And now let's get back to our conversation with Brie. I wanted to ask about that because, you know, you have, you're Black and Indigenous and to be raised with no connection to your culture. Like, you know, I, I feel such a strong connection to my Polish culture. It was just so much of everything growing up. It was like every meal, every ritual, every the way we said goodnight to each other. It was all tied up in that. And so is this, is after your mom died, was that kind of like your first entrance into your culture or did that happen earlier? Yes. No. I think my reclamation journey definitely started when I, when I reconnected like in my mid twenties. Mm-hmm. I, and I, I, it's a lot of adoptees love the show. Maybe some don't, but have you ever watched the show? This is us, Alex. No, I can't, I can't watch stuff like that because I, <laughs> I know I can't. It, like It's so good for learning though. <laughs> oh my God. I just, I don't, I don't, I, I think it's too emotional for me. I can't watch shows that make me that emotional, Brie. I like, give me a show where people are like getting their heads torn off by dragons 
And that's all I have the capacity for <laughs> at nighttime, okay? I, I do get that, though. I do yeah. get that. Like, I do love me some true crime. And then I'm like, how am I, like, how is true crime, like, mindless and, like, I can go to bed after, like, watching it? I do understand that. But I'll, so I'll just speak to, like, this is us, is, like, the representation. And I think that the the writers did a really good job of, like, I think they really listened to, do- like, adoptees yeah. because you can see it in how um, Randall, he's a TRA, his experience like I did that. I would go to the mall of Lime Ridge Mall, like back when it was like a few stores and not as like bougie as it is now. I remember going to Lime Ridge Mall with my mom and I would be walking around and I, it's called Ghost Kingdom. I would kind of just look at these black families and I'd be like, what if they're my parents? Like, right. what if that person is my mom? What if mom, like, what if they are, they kind of look like me. Or then I was like, what if I have a celebrity parent? Like, how cool would that be if like, you see all of the shows like Maury where like they'd find like an adoptee's parent. So I was like, what if like Oprah is my mom? Like I, then I create this ghost kingdom where like Oprah was my mom and I'd like inherit a million dollars. Like, oh, it would be grand. Hell of a more than a million dollars. (laughs) (laughs) right so uh, billionaire yeah so I think that yeah like I just I definitely kind of like in a weird way I just was very like I again outsider looking in I would just look at different families and just yeah try and find my way into them you know like just like just watch them I'd like I'd just see it and then that's how I'd, I'd kind of observe it that way but I didn't even I found out in terms of my, I always knew I was, I was biracial. I always knew that I was black in another race, but I found out I was indigenous when I found my care plan when I was 25. So for 25 years, I had no idea I was indigenous. And that was a whole other thing is that my bio mom is, is um, black Nova Scotian. And my biological father is Mi'kmaq First Nation. So like for me to then get my care plan, which my mom had, and I'd <laughs> And that comes with a whole other feeling of betrayal. Um, that's when I found out I was Indigenous. And that would have been really, like, helpful to know earlier is, like, who I was. And, like, when I was trying to figure out who I was, because that's what you do in your teen, trying to figure out who you are. And then just throughout life, you try and figure out who you are. But it's just, it's a reclamation journey. It's a whole lot harder than than people understand. Well, I I imagine, too, that... No, you may never find them. Yeah. Yeah. You may never find, like, I put it in the access to information when I was 21, but like, I didn't, it wasn't an open adoption and it, it puts you in a place that like, you could get a no, you could get, sorry, we like the thing about, um, in Ontario, the other person has to say, okay, for a closed adoption. So this is how, just explain a little bit about that. The government knows more about an adoptee and a foster child than we know about them, like ourselves. The government knows more about us than we know. And we have to submit an access to information in order to get our own identity information. That's which so is fucked up. Fucked up. <laughs> yeah. It's so fucked up. This is the system. This is the system. Shouldn't it be even just for health reasons? And, okay, not just for, okay, so for health reasons, that's one thing. You should have the right to know what to be aware of. Second, it's like being being Indigenous, being Black, um, but not knowing you're Indigenous, obviously know you're Black, but there are so many tools 
that are available to Indigenous students right now in schools. And I don't know about when we were in school, but I imagine they had tools. And to not just have the access to that is is huge. And if you never know, and it's like you can never like take advantage of that and and because that would help in so many ways I'm sure different people you know what I mean yeah. like that's that's alarming that's alarming it is. it is alarming and that's and it's it's the puzzle of it all like it's like that's the reason why people are like wondering why adoptions adoptees again today is adoptee remembrance day um it's because Adoptees are often forgotten. The people think that once a person is adopted, that like trauma's gone, they got a family, like, look, look, look. It's like the people who hold a sign. It's like, I spent 800 days in a like foster care and now I'm adopted. Okay, that child's good for life. Like, no, it, it just like, it doesn't take into account that like, that's a feel good story. Everyone loves them. People love sharing them. It's like, makes people feel really good inside, but they're not understanding that behind that story is a child that's going to have to deal with that loss, that separation from their family and the complexity that comes with that and maybe never knowing their other whole the other families. So it's like adoptees have to grow up never knowing who their parent, their original parents are, who their original families are, what it's like to be in community um, with the people that look like them. And that's really like a lot for children, especially children to carry, um, especially if they don't have therapists or adoption competent therapists or just people who are aware of that to guide them on those journeys. And that's why today is like a really important day because it holds space for people who died by suicide because they felt really alone and isolated and didn't know how to, to, to hold the complexities. It's a day to remember people who were deported because they didn't get the immigration <laughs> um, status that comes with adoption. They were adopted into a family, but the immigration was never. So once they were 18, they're deported oh into God. back into a community that they've never known. This is why it's really important to listen to adoptees. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and the last thing I want to ask you, Bree, is is there, and I know it's going to be hard to kind of narrow this down or prioritize at the top of your head, but if there's one thing that you want to leave as a takeaway that you want people to understand about adoption, what would it be? There really needs to be a shift from the altruism behind adoption. There really needs to be a shift of like, what, what would happen to all of these children if they, if we didn't adopt them? Because the reason that the children, I mean, look at Roe versus Wade, the reason why the children are even in the system in the first place is because of the narrative of like, just go through, go through labor and give it to like, it's like viewed as like this, like. Give it to somebody who's waiting for a baby. Yeah, exactly. And maybe that wouldn't happen as much if that wasn't like if the, the children weren't viewed as commodities and maybe if there are more services available that like look at fostering that, that supported keeping a family together instead of tearing them apart. I think that people really need to be aware of, of the barriers that exist for families in general that result in, in children entering care and really 
speak up about it. Like speak up about family reunification, speak up about family preservation, really speak up about the barriers that families and parents face in raising children, especially if they don't have a village. People always talk about the village and that's a whole other conversation, but not all everybody has a village. And therefore that might result in them really being isolated and not receiving the support they need to raise children. And then the children going into care when they, if they had the village, if they had more support, the child and the family could have been, could have stayed together. There's a, there's trauma on the other side too. There is trauma for birth parents. I do recognize that. And I know that deeply that I know my birth mother has trauma and I, maybe one day we'll be able to heal and come together, but there has to be work on both sides to get there. So I think that that's the biggest thing I would leave is that is moving from the adoption as a feel good story, moving from, if I can't have kids, I'm, if I can't have kids, then I'm going to adopt. And then really just listening to adoptees as to the fact that adoption is always, should always be child and youth centered and never about ego and never about yourself. It should always be about how can I be there? Like if, if you're in a place of you want to adopt because you want to adopt, that's a whole other thing, but you shouldn't adopt because you want a baby mm-hmm. or a child. That's not, that's not a good enough reason. And I'm going to be, I would stand firm in that because yeah. unless you've done the healing work, because not being able to have a child and I've, and I'm, I'm really sorry. I want to go back to that. I'm really sorry for that experience of miscarriage because I know myself having experienced that the grief that comes with it. Mm-hmm. If you haven't done the healing for the grief and then you're adopting yeah. a child, yeah, that grief's still there and that child's going to feel it. Yeah. No, I, I want to thank you so much. Like you have been so insightful, so eloquent and just like illuminating. And this, I've really, really, First of all, I just enjoyed reconnecting with you and connecting with you on a deeper level than I've ever connected with you. <laughs> and that's been really we were passing nice. ships. <laughs> yeah. No, but this this has been really, really nice. And yeah. um just again, illuminating. And yeah. I know that the listeners will get that. And it it's totally by fluke that today is a day of remembrance for adoptees. I I had no idea. Um, And and thank you for bringing attention to that. But truly, Brie, like this has been an amazing conversation. Thank you so much. And where can people go to find you online if they want to learn? Because you talk about this openly and you have a whole account dedicated to it. So where, where can they go to find more about that? Yeah, um, they can find me at, um, I go by the mom social worker online. I don't know for how long. <laughs> I feel like I'm like evolving. And you know, when you just like have a name that you're connect, like that's your name on a social media, you're like, is that still for me? <laughs> and where I want to go. <laughs> but for now, they can find me as the mom social worker. And I really want to recognize that, like, again, I recognize how this might be really uncomfortable for some people to listen to. So thank you for listening because. And I hope that maybe you can reflect on some of the things that I talked about. And and I hope that you can connect with other adoptees. Um, I'm connected to a whole bunch of adoptees. And hopefully in, in the National Adoption Awareness Month, I will be sharing a lot of those different profiles. Um, there's a lot of adoptees that do a lot more active work than I do that I can definitely um, share with everyone. Um, and I'm really grateful for them because 
the biggest thing about healing is like you heal when you learn the language for what you're carrying. Mm -hmm. And I think that adoptees are doing great work and sharing the language of the the experiences to help adoptees heal. So I would love to kind of share more of that with all of you. That's amazing. Thank you so much. And that was the conversation with Brianna. I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. I walked away from that one just with so much to think about, so much and so much to take into my own parenting and how I interact with people in my own family. Uh, So again, I hope you got as much out of that as I did. And thank you so much, Brianna, for sharing. But folks, moving on to the mailbag segment which is our favorite part of the podcast. Mine for sure, and I'm speaking on behalf of Shane, who is not here. It's his favorite part of the podcast too. But this is where listeners send in questions via Instagram, questions or topics, and we hit them. So starting off, the first question. Did you send that picture of your parents' house to the medium and what did she say? Okay, so for the Halloween spooktacular episode, I had on two mediums. One was a witch and a medium. The other person was a medium and shadow guide. So I sent in a picture of my parents' house to the medium and shadow guide, Nicole Baron, because she t- was t- we were talking about haunted houses. And I was like, oh my God, my childhood home, definitely haunted. My dog, you could put like the juiciest steak or like Kong filled with peanut butter in a certain corner or in the basement. She would not go if her life depended on, like you could be pulling her physically. And this was the most docile dog. She would try to nip at you. She was terrified. Okay, so I was like, can you get a reading of my parents' house and like know if it's haunted via pictures? And she said, maybe. So I sent her a picture. I sent her a picture of the basement, the outside. And she couldn't say if it was haunted or not. But again, I don't think I need her blessing. I know it's haunted. But she was like, look into the previous owners if anybody had a military history. And there were only like not many previous owners before my family. So it shouldn't be tricky. But she thinks that there was something weird happening with somebody who had a military background. So I got to look into it. So this is uh, a little carrot to to dangle in front of you for next week's episode because I'm going to hopefully get the history on who lived in that house to find out anything. But this is like, this is a research assignment and I'm excited to take this on. But I mean, if that house is being haunted by like a soldier ghost, because my parents still live there, they need to get out. It's like, should I even look into this? Is it just going to ruin their life? Are they going to be too scared to sleep at night? I don't know. But that's where I'm at with the ghost story. Next question. Do you work full-time or is influencing your gig right now? So I work full-time, but in a occasional teacher. So I'm a supply. So I go in every day, but I can take time off when I need to. So it's really nice. So if, you know, the kids are sick, if I have a day full of interviews for the podcast, if contracts to do for TikTok or something, I can take that time. I don't have to take my work home with me in the evenings. It's perfect for where we are in life right now. You know, it gives us a lot of freedom, a lot of flexibility. And I I love what I do and I, I never wanna get out of it. I really love education. And I think that's why I love this podcast and being in the motherhood community because I like learning. I like learning and I like sharing what I learn. So I think this gives me a really good opportunity to do that kind of full-time 
you know, and, and this is the work that I'm taking home with me. And it's really nice. But my God, like, I don't talk about it often, all the work that goes into the podcast and the socials. But it is so much. I'm trying to, like, it is, it's essentially a full-time job. So we've got two full-time jobs. And then Shane has another podcast as well, aside from this one, and the TV show. So he's essentially working four jobs. I'm working two and then taking on a huge bulk of the parenting during the week at least. And it is honestly so difficult to fit anything in. Like I was even looking at text messages. I mean, get this. I feel like the worst person in the world. I'm catching up on text messages from the past week because I have so many unread, like just from friends, guys, friends. Like I don't even have time to sit there and like chat with friends. And one girl, like my best friend in my girl group just announced last week that she was pregnant. I read it this morning, taking my morning pee at like 6 a.m., read it, felt awful, and then sent her a message immediately because she's pregnant. Like, this is so exciting. And, oh, I, I just, I feel like the worst person. And again, coming back to intentionality and prioritizing, I did not make my friend feel loved there. And I am such a jerk for that. And I really need to get better at saying, okay, like, you know, 10 minutes a day, I'm going to sit there and I can get through all my chat groups, all my, you know, my conversations, my texts from whoever has messaged me throughout the day that I didn't have a second to get back to because other people feel it. Like I feel it. If somebody's absent, if I'm saying something exciting in my life and if they don't react or if they're just not present, it hurts and it sucks. But then being the person that's not present, you don't even realize what's going on. You don't even realize what kind of energy you're contributing because you're just not there. So I really want to get better at that aspect of life too because I'm just shit in the bed. But next question. How do you handle situations where you disagree with medical professionals? So this is a tricky one because... I'm not a medical professional. (laughs) I am not smart in that regard at all, guys. I like, it's not my thing, obviously. So I'm not ever, I mean, you never say it, never, but I haven't ever been in a situation where I've looked at a medical professional. I've said, you're wrong. I disagree with you because of this. What I will do in situations, if I if I have a hunch or my instinct says, okay, you know, there's there's something more to this because I'm living in my body, the medical professional is not, second opinions. And just to continue advocating for yourself and to find a doctor because what I realized, you know, with my medical journey and getting diagnosed with lupus and putting up with symptoms of that, high-risk pregnancies, everything, is it's just, it's the lack of time, in the lack of care, I guess, that some doctors have. And it's about finding somebody who is going to have your back and who is going to join you in advocating for your own health. Because that is so hard. It's hard to find somebody, shockingly. Like our family doctor is a menace. She is never around. When she's around, she's like out of it and wants to, uh, I know they're busy, but like rush you in and rush you out to a degree where you can't even 
fully sit down and tell her your issue because she is in her mind already someplace else. Uh, Shane's trying to get like a couple moles removed that have just been growing at like an insane pace on his face. Um, and like she won't even, he needs a referral from her in order to get it removed. But to get her to even write the referral is, we've been trying to track her down for a month. It's insane. We're like, can we just send you pictures and then you write the referral? Because that seems like the easiest option now. And it's impossible. So advocate for yourself. Get a new doctor. Second opinions. Talk to anybody who will give you the time of day. And that's what you need to do if you feel like your health is you know, not getting taken care of. As we said, that's so important. Nobody wants to like wake up one day and realize you're about to die from something that you could have taken care of two years earlier, right? Worst fear for everybody, or maybe just me and I'm projecting. I don't know, guys. This is what happens when we get a solo episode. I ramble and you sit there and listen to it. But the next question, if you could get rid of one daily activity, like brushing your teeth for the rest of your life, what would it be? It'd be freaking shaving. I mean, shave or don't shave. Like I know some people, you know, they want to be hairy. They want to let it go. Some people like to wax it all and be hairless like forever. I don't care what you want to do. I prefer to be hairless on my legs and armpits. And shaving is the most annoying thing in the world. I get itchy when it starts to grow back in. I get like, what do you, not diaper rash. I don't have a diaper. I get freaking the rash, whatever it's called, guys. It's 10 o'clock at night. It's all awful. Shaving sucks. It sucks to have to buy razors. It sucks to have to shave, cut yourself, and then deal with the you know new growth, and it's all spiky and yucky. I hate it. Plus, I have this like bad habit of I'm like, all right, like Shane and I are going to have a date night or we're going to get cozy tonight. So I'll shave my legs, and I'll be feeling really good about myself. You know, like when you feel like a dolphin and you get in the covers and you just feel so slippery and awesome. And then we don't get cozy, you know, cause not prioritizing and falling asleep. And then it's like, we finally get cozy on a day where I have like a two day stubble and it's so spiky that it could like slice your finger open. That, I hate that. I could get rid of that whole cycle in an instant and that would be pretty nice. I don't even know what could compare. Like nothing is as annoying in my life as like a part of the daily routine as shaving. And I was trying to think about it. Brushing your teeth, I don't mind. doesn't take too long. Then I thought skincare. Because the whole like putting on serums, washing your face, it takes a bit. But I like that. It's relaxing. I like the little face massage I give myself. It's good. It's only shaving. If you have a different answer, I would love to know what is worse than shaving. Honestly, it might be pooping. Like if you could just have that emptied out magically and not poop and not have to take the time and bidet and whatever, that could be nice too. All right. And the final question that I'm going to answer tonight is Nick Cannon. More of a topic. Nick Cannon is having baby number 11. What number do you think he's going to stop at? Nick Cannon, my goodness, how exhausting must it be to have to deal with so many partners, so many co-parents, like so many, and so many kids. It's a tricky situation. I'm not living his life, so I'm not going to like speak on the ins and outs of it. I just know that for me, that would be hell. But 
I feel like he wants to set a record. And I, I don't know how many kids other celebs have. Like, I'm trying to think of who historically, celebrity-wise, had a lot of kids that he might be trying to beat. But I would put money that he hits 15. Maybe he stops at 15. Maybe he surpasses it. I put money that he hits 15. I feel like he's making a statement here. And it ends at 15. If anybody else wants to take me on this bet, I am like, I'm so happy to do it. If Shane was here, I'd bet like a back massage on this. But I say 15. I'm actually shocked that it's already 11. I didn't know it was that high already. I thought he was like at eight. I was trying to think. George Foreman, a boxer, I think he had about 10. So Nick would have surpassed him. But I think George Foreman ended up naming like the majority of his kids George Foreman, which is also hilarious and awesome. Um, yeah, I'm putting my money on 15 kids for Nick Cannon. If anybody else wants to put money on it, hit me up in my DMs. I am ready to hear it. But folks, thank you so much for joining me on this weird, unusual solo episode. I had a great time yammering into my mic and I hope you had an okay time listening. But if you do enjoy this podcast, even if you enjoy it more with Shane and you hated this episode, give us a rating, give us a comment. We appreciate it so much, folks. It's a way for us to kind of, you know, just keep in touch and know how we're doing, but we really would appreciate it. And thank you so much for listening to this Family Tree Podcast, episode 149.